The first person that researched Raritan Landing was Cornelius Vermeule. His research was pivotal. Uh, he documented an important settlement there before and after the revolution, the American Revolution. So C.C. Vermeule's work was pivotal and instrumental in making the case that Raritan Landing was an important regional settlement of trade and commerce up and down the, the Raritan drainage. Born in 1859, his father purchased a large amount of property that was once part of the 18th century port community. Vermeule was raised at the former site of Raritan Landing. He was educated at Rutgers and became a civil engineer. To write a history of where he grew up, he included the local legends he heard as a child. He also examined historical documents, land records, and death records. Cornelius Vermeule presented his history of Raritan Landing to the New Brunswick Historical Club in 1930. His history was also published in the local newspaper, the Central Home News Tribune, in a four-part series the same year. It is important to remember Vermeule for the attention he paid to Raritan Landing. He introduced the public to this unknown poor community. During the winter of 1978, it was Dr. Joel Grossman's job to find evidence of the lost port community. He successfully utilized a relatively new kind of non-invasive technology, ground-penetrating radar. The data showed that building foundations were buried nearly three feet below the surface. The Rutgers Archaeological Survey Office was about to begin the first major excavation of the most studied archaeological site in New Jersey. From the Middlesex County Board of County Commissioners, I'm Douglas Almack, and this is Uncovering Raritan Landing. It was a hub of transportation because that was the maximum depth that a riverboat, a cargo ship, could come up the river and dock. Walter Muley, and he was driving down the road and saw people digging, and he stopped and he just started telling the whole the whole story of Raritan Landing. And so my job was to find out whether or not anything survived. And yes, there are slaves in Raritan Landing, and there are slaves in New Brunswick. You really have to be fair to the artifacts and let them speak to you and not uh, make a jump to conclusions. Then you lose the value of the archaeology. In the late 1600s, property was purchased by wealthy Dutch merchants, descendants of prominent Dutch families from the Hudson Valley of New York. They recognized the valuable land close to the Raritan River in Middlesex County, located in central New Jersey. I think people should always pay more attention to New Jersey because it's got a really interesting history. That's Dr. Maxine Laurie. She's Professor Emeritus of History at Seton Hall University, a board member of the New Jersey Historical Commission, and a writer of several books on the colonial period of New Jersey. The land along the rivers was, uh, was more fertile, uh, better for farming. And secondly, the rivers were the means of transportation. It was easier to move goods at that point on a river than um, by horse or wagon, oxen, um, especially in regions where they, there were no roads, where they're first starting to build roads. And when they do build roads in the winter, they're icy, and in the spring, they're muddy, and your wheels would you know, sink into it. Um, so it's along the rivers that, that's um, really the most important land. Land was leased and purchased 
along the more prominent rivers in other parts of New Jersey, such as the Delaware, the Passaic, and the Raritan River. It was on this important land that houses and warehouses were constructed. Dr. Joel Grossman. The work of C.C. Vermeil documented that there were warehouses up and down Landing Lane between the river and River Road, 57 structures. When we tried to plot those structures on the ground, we could only locate about six or seven of them that were reconstructable. The 50-so other buildings were not identifiable from the documentary record alone. The documentary record shows that New Jersey was a breadbasket colony. It produced large quantities of agricultural commodities, such as wheat. One of the many items stored in warehouses at Raritan Landing were products made from wheat. Dr. Maxine Laurie. All New Jersey towns are, are really small, and it's mostly rural. And like Pennsylvania and New York, it's considered one of the bread colonies because it produced foodstuffs. It produced meat, uh, so pork. They raised hogs. Uh, they raised cows, cattle. Um, they raised um, lambs, uh, um, sheep, lambs. Um, so for, for meat, so it's producing meat. Um, it's producing a wide variety of agricultural uh, products. So wheat is really important, corn, um, but also all kinds of vegetables. So they produced a lot and exported uh, food. So some they sent to New York, some they sent to Philadelphia, which are growing, but they also are shipping the products to the West Indies. Um, uh, so they're shipping it um, other places. Wheat coming down the Raritan River to um, to Raritan Landing to New Brunswick. It's important. This is why uh, Raritan Landing grows in part um, because it's at the point in the river where where you could transfer goods to ocean-going vessels. Transportation of marketable goods spurred Raritan Landing's growth from 1720 to the American Revolution. Two different methods were used to transport wheat and corn to Raritan Landing first by wagon, where it was stored in warehouses. The second method was transportation by smaller boats, called scows. The scows floated down the river, goods were unloaded from the scows and stored inside the warehouses at the landing. In addition to the warehouses, there were mills, sawmills, and grain mills. The processed grain obtained by bakers in town was used to make ship spread, which was then sold to the vessels that transported the wheat and corn to places like nearby New Brunswick, New York Harbor, Philadelphia, and ports located in New England, such as Rhode Island, and down the coast, such as South Carolina. Besides bakers, other craftspeople moved to the thriving community, such as physicians, there was the Rising Sun Tavern, a shoemaker, a blacksmith, and barrel makers obtained wood from the sawmills to make barrels and casks and other shipping containers of the 18th century. Even though Raritan Landing was not an official port, it has been identified as an intermediary port, or entrepot. It is important to remember that Raritan Landing was one of the many places located near New York and Philadelphia, which contributed to its growth. Okay, New Jersey is between New York, which is one of the worldwide best natural harbors uh, in the world, and Philadelphia, not quite such you know easy access, not quite the same, but it's over always um, from the 17th century. 
uh, from at least uh, the 1780s, really dominated uh, by those uh, by those two ports which grow. So New Jersey never uh, could really successfully totally compete, um, but the ports that it does have would be Perth Amboy on the east um, and Burlington on the west. And then there's other smaller ports um, along the Delaware and also um, along the Atlantic. But those would be the two, um, the two major ones that they hoped would turn into something bigger and more important. But they don't. Cornelius Vermeule's identification of Raritan Landing is important, along with Dr. Maxine Laurie's expertise, her research and writings, which are also extremely valuable. But one of the most valuable resources of Raritan Landing are the artifacts that were in the ground. That's what a good archaeological site will do, let alone telling you who owned, who owned this and who owned that. What were the people doing? What was, what was life like in the uh, 1700s, 1800s? Old letters and diaries and stuff, yeah, that'll tell you that, but it's not entirely accurate. But archaeology usually doesn't lie. That's David Zamoda, someone that has been excavating Raritan Landing for over two decades. Before he started working at the excavation, he worked for the National Park Service in Maryland. When I worked for the, for the Park Service, my mom sent an article from the paper on Raritan Landing, and I went, you know, you know, this is cool. He applied, interviewed, and accepted a job with the Rutgers Archaeological Survey Office. A few days later, he informed his supervisor at the National Park Service. I got some good news and I got some bad news. <laughs> And he says, what? I said, well, the good news is um, I, got a, I got a new job. And he goes, what's the bad news? He says, they want me to start tomorrow. Packed up an apartment into a, into a 72 Pinto and uh, pretty much never looked back. <laughs> David Zamoda started working at the excavation site after the ground-penetrating radar was completed. I think I started around Labor Day in 79. We worked in the December, took a break for the winter. Pretty hard to dig when the ground is frozen solid, although we did try. Continued up in the spring. After we closed up in the field, they asked me to work in the lab uh, and work on the uh, glass analysis right up that section of the report. It was, some, it was sometime in mid-1980 when, uh, when I was finished up the work and was laid off there. He remembers a large staff at the excavation. If I recall, almost 25 people in the field. And then they had the lab staff. They had photogra- two photographers. They had a, uh, a surveyor. It, it, was, it was a pretty large uh, undertaking. He was hired as a field tech. Which meant I sat in the dirt all day long and uh, excavated test units and recorded Map mapping and helping out other excavators if they needed a hand at something. Uh, everybody had a uh, a set task. We had people that all they did was uh, screen the the dirt for artifacts. After the field, as I said, uh, I worked in the lab and laid out artifacts and analyzed glass specifically for me and reassembled artifacts from the pieces. I was sort of known as the the jigsaw puzzle expert who could uh, put together a smashed uh, 18th century wine bottle and uh, get it back to what it used to look like. Also did uh, uh, artifact drawings, cross-section drawings of the glass artifacts 
following the uh, analysis of the artifacts, wrote up the text for the uh, report on the on the site for the glass analysis. Every profession has words that are used over and over again. Archaeologists use the term field tech and in the field. We wanted to know what that meant, so we asked Mr. Zamoda to define those terms. That was during the uh, the actual excavation of the site. This would have been the uh, Middlesex County uh, sewer trunk line, I believe it was it was called. Um, it was about an eight foot diameter concrete sewer pipe that ran parallel to River Road. I'm not sure where it started and where it ended. We did we did know we were holding up the project. When archaeologists are digging in the ground, they do it scientifically. They dig in what is referred to as a test unit. A test unit is a controlled excavation. Archaeologists will use uh, a five by five foot grid. Sometimes they'll use a three by three grid, or some will use uh, metric, so we do a meter grid. And if you lay out a grid, you know, if you imagine a checkerboard, each each square has a designated number. And the archaeologist will dig one square at a time, doing perfectly straight walls or profiles as you dig down each layer of soil at a time. And that gives the control of the artifacts that are found within each layer of soil. Um, You know, obviously the general rule is the deeper it is, the older it is. As a field tech, David Zamoda dug in excavation units to answer a question. With field techniques and, and, and of course, you know, you're, you're digging based on the questions you want to answer. For instance, uh, on the corner uh, Landing Lane River Road, this, the uh, store, what kind, of, what kind of things were they selling? Now, if you had the ledgers, easy, but, you know, there's no real documentation that I recall. But, you know, is there evidence in the ground of what they were selling? Based on that, you know, what's the economic situation? While digging was going on, archaeologists were taking photographs using an enormous bipod. A high-resolution camera was hoisted 25 feet above the excavation units. This was set up because archaeologists usually sketched images of the excavation units. The bipod camera system was another creative, time-saving method that Dr. Grossman felt was necessary. So instead of hand-drawing every stone... We can photograph them with an overhead camera, bipod camera, in stereo, and then come up with a photo composite of each of the buried surfaces, which were then combined with computer-generated maps of the differing density of different artifact categories, glass, pottery, metal, bone, leather, shell. Etc. And so I could build a computerized series of maps showing the relative density of different categories of artifacts as a way of calibrating the radar uh, that we did later on. The staff of the Rutgers Archaeology Survey Office, or RASO, constructed the overhead bipod camera system. The RASO laboratory was originally built in a reconverted chicken coop on Cook College campus. And the students themselves cleaned out the chicken coop and made it into a sterile lab with 
exhaust fans taking out bad air and bringing good air into the laboratory. And the laboratory was built from dirty to clean facilities where the artifacts first came in from excavation dirty. And when they left the facility, they were ready for museum exhibit at the other end. And we had a microphonographic studio inside the conservation lab that documented the artifacts after they were stabilized and inventoried. One of the things we did to expedite the project was to build an overhead bipod system that was two tubes connected together at the top about 25 feet up and cables connected to the top. Under the top of the tubes was a camera mount for a big Hasselblad camera, which was a medium format, high resolution camera, lens and, and body. And we designed a system that self-leveled so that the camera was elevated, not 25 feet, I'd say, maybe 15 feet above the ground. And by tipping the two rods, you could get a stereo coverage. By pulling it towards you, you got one photograph. And then by pushing it away from you in the air, you got another photograph. While field techs of Razo were digging, recording the findings, taking pictures, Dr. Grossman was busy with one of his most important assignments. He was assisting engineers in reducing the 45-foot corridor in which the sewer pipe was going to be installed. Dr. Grossman. The engineers had to come up with an engineering solution that would reduce the impact corridor. The radar map showed the extent of the buried settlement and the amount of destruction that a 40-foot-wide trench 500 feet long would do. We decided that the best solution was to reduce the width of the construction trench to 15 feet by about 300 feet. So instead of destroying a 40-foot-wide trench, the engineers came up with an engineering solution of building only a 15-foot-wide trench with sheeting separating the site, sheeting metal walls being built to separate the site from the construction. Dr. Grossman helped the engineers reduce the corridor from 45 feet. However, this also reduced the size of the excavation. We got one-tenth of one percent of the size of the settlement. I estimate that 90% of the site is still preserved under shale or related fill along the river. There were times when Mr. Zamoda and other field techs were digging in bone-chillingly cold weather. The digging could not be paused because of the inconvenient temperature. There was a deadline. So Dr. Grossman had to come up with another creative solution. One of the problems of working in winter conditions because of the financial pressures on the project, was to develop all-weather shelters. Normally, archaeologists excavated with fair weather conditions, spring, summertime. But because rare landing was so urgent, 
I was asked to develop capabilities to do excavation at a high speed to the highest standards in a fraction of the traditional time frame. So that was going to require shelters. Fortunately, I was stationed at the Rutgers Agricultural Facility Soil Science uh, College, and they developed greenhouses for their crops. So I went to the agriculture engineers and asked them to help me design all of their shelters that would withstand blizzards and extreme cold. So we developed a two-skin inflated skin of the shelters instead of just one piece of plastic that had hot air rotating throughout from heaters we built inside the shelters and then blasted hot air into the insulation between the outer and inner plastic shell and was able to house 25 to 30 archaeologists working uh, in deep winter conditions. Unfortunately, the conditions weren't the greatest. I think we started <coughs> around uh, Labor Day and worked into December, which was horrible. If you want to be underneath a tent with a kerosene heater breathing the fumes. When archaeologists start to dig, sometimes they have an idea of what they're going to find. Sometimes they don't. The corridor, and we only had a 15-foot wide corridor to excavate where the, where the sewer pipe was going. Heavy equipment peeled off the, the shale fill before we got in there. It was just the most economical way to move all that hundreds of cubic yards of uh, uh, spoils. But as we came down to the original ground level when the fill came up, there were artifacts coming out. One of the most exciting discoveries occurred early in the excavation, and Dr. Grossman informed other agencies using a cellular telephone. On the radio telephone that I had, the new telephone, I had to call everybody after we did the backhoe cut that revealed the 1,600 artifacts from the early 18th century. I had to call all the agencies at the state level, at the county level, at the federal level. And it got to be kind of humorous in my point of view because I called the federal government, for example, and they wanted to know the results of the testing. And they were expecting a technically dry characterization of the process. And I said, I'm sorry, but it's King Tut. Explicative, deleted King Tut down there. I've never seen so many fancy artifacts in my life. That was funny to me at the time. <laughs> I don't know if the feds thought it was so funny, but uh, that's what I told them. David Zamoda was surprised by what he found one day. A lot of what I worked on was what we called uh, uh, Building B, which was a mid-18th century structure. There were a couple trash pits uh, associated with it, one which had a dead dog thrown into it, which I got to excavate. It was uh, quite interesting. 
I hate to say, but it was a puppy, uh, probably less than six months old based on the uh, teeth. But uh, it also looked like it, it died of a broken neck. During the 18th century, people of Raritan Landing discarded unwanted items in trash pits. Well, of course, there was no garbage truck to come around every Thursday. So most people either dug a hole in their backyard and buried it. Uh, the hole would be open for a considerable length of time. They also would throw it into uh, privies, since uh, out of sight, out of mind, so to speak. The pits that I excavated were maybe two feet wide and six feet long, maybe, in a row parallel to the uh, building foundation. Uh, it was hard to tell how long they were open, but you have to remember that the amount of garbage produced two, three hundred years ago is not the same as it is today. Generally, bottles were not thrown away unless you dropped it and broke it because they were always reused. So what you find is basically broken, broken glass, broken ceramics, food remains, bones in particular, nutshells, corn cobs, and they generally do not survive unless they were burned or, you know, below the water table. If the pits were open for a long time, any type of bone, sometimes you'll find uh, chew marks from either dogs or rats. Sometimes you'll find rat bones in the, in the trash pits. Another place that trash was thrown was into the privy. We asked Mr. Zamoda to elaborate. You know, the uh, early version of the bathroom. Before there was plumbing, you uh, did your business in a privy. You know what it was? It was a, a excavated hole. could be any, any depth. Some in, in Philadelphia were, I think, 10, 15 feet deep. It could be stone-lined. It could be brick-lined. It could be uh, wood-lined. And then the little the outhouse would be built on top. People generally assume that it it was a secret hiding place. So sometimes you'll you'll find uh, liquor bottles because you know if I drink it here, nobody's ever going to know. Well, yeah, we're going to know 200 years from now. <laughs> In uh, rural situations where you had a lot of property, you just dig a new one, move the uh, outhouse over to the new location. And as you dug the hole, you'd throw the dirt into the old hole to bury what was left. You know, Raritan Landing was was halfway between urban and rural. It was quite interesting that in all the excavations done there, there was only really one privy identified. It was hard hard to say why why only one was found. I think there might have been a well that might have been reconverted uh, to a privy later on, which was often the case. Um, you know, of course, they didn't think about uh, hygiene and, and bacteria and, and, you know, poisoning your well. You know, in urban situations, you know, a well could have been 10 feet from the privy. You know, you can only imagine what... Uh, diseases were were possible, and, and there was a lot of disease. There was a lot of excitement generated by the excavation. 
Dr. Grossman compared Raritan Landing and the excavation of Colonial Williamsburg, and that trickled down to people like field tech David Zamoda. The running joke when we were out in the field with the, in the Razzo days was, uh, holy sh! that's another Williamsburg. Then he added an interesting bit of Jersey trivia. One of the Rockefellers had a big thing to do with, with Williamsburg. You know what was uh, considered before Williamsburg? New Brunswick. I've heard this local legend before. John D. Rockefeller was looking to restore a colonial city to its former glory. During the 1920s, he considered New Brunswick and visited there. He did not choose to restore New Brunswick. What is the source for this local legend? I first learned of this myth when I read an article about the revitalization of New Brunswick written by archaeologist Rebecca Yeaman. In a footnote, she stated she had not seen any documentary evidence that proved the legend to be based on facts. John Lynch Jr., former mayor of New Brunswick, informed Dr. Yeaman he saw correspondence between the city and Rockefeller that proves the story to be true. But I don't know if we should believe Lynch. According to a 2006 article in the New York Times, Mr. Lynch was sentenced to 39 months in prison because he accepted a $25,000 bribe from a mining company. When the field techs finished for the day, Dr. Grossman and Mr. Zamoda were aware of a common pest that popped up at historic archaeological sites, looters. In late March of 1978, during the beginning stages of the project, Dr. Grossman confided to a reporter of the Courier News that looters of archaeological sites were amateur bottle collectors, and he was certain he noticed members of a local treasure club looking for loot. There was a rumor that looters were disguised as professional archaeologists and had explored the site searching for artifacts. Members of the Rutgers Archaeological Survey Office were threatened with severe disciplinary action if they assisted the looters. To combat this threat, the Middlesex County Park Police were ordered to patrol the area around the clock. A sign was posted that read, Trespassers will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. David Zamoda remembered working with the Middlesex County Park Police. Their headquarters was located near the site. When we were doing the data recovery, we, we did consult with the uh, Middlesex County Park Police. Of course, you know, they were just right down the road. They knew what we were doing and, and made it a point to keep an eye on it. And, and uh, I'm pretty sure we told them if, if, if you see somebody there after dark, they're not supposed to be there. Feel free to do whatever you got to do. I don't believe there were any issues at all. It was either well protected or, or people didn't even try to, you know, to get in after hours. Press coverage can be very helpful to those working at archaeological sites. The stories entice people to become interested in local history. Teachers bring classes to show how history was preserved. But press coverage has been viewed as somewhat detrimental. David Zamoda. Almost any larger job always has press coverage. You know, one of the things we try to stress to the reporters is, oh, don't tell them we're finding coins or, you know, this and that. And uh, because it makes people, collectors want to come in at night and, uh, you know, just tear through, you know, what we're doing. You know, a lot of times, you know, the artifacts are, are downplayed. I can think of one case, I, I'm, I'm not sure what job it was. We made the request to the reporter and it showed up in the article in the paper. It said uh, they didn't want to 
want us to say what good stuff was found because they don't want looters coming to to <laughs> to dig up everything at night. And it's like he just gave him an invitation. <laughs> Those that visited the site were guided by Dr. Rebecca Yeaman. And so there were sewer pipes right next to where we were digging because they had almost gotten there and they were almost going to drop them in the ground. So I would take children through the sewer pipes to tell them about the archaeology and we would come very close to the excavation units and stare down at them. And some kids said once, um, how come they were so, people were so short? Because they were thinking that the depth of the, you know, they didn't quite get, the, you know, which is perfectly understandable. I raised my kids in Highland Park, so I lived here. That's why I worked on this. Eli's class came through, came on a class trip and many other classes. And Eli works in New York now. He's a jazz pianist. And he met somebody from Highland Park, from his Highland Park joys, who remembered me and remembered the lecture I had given, you know, in the 1970s and walking through the sewer park. Isn't that cool? Mm. So we did it from the beginning. During an excavation, when field techs are involved in data recovery, which consists of removing artifacts from excavation units or holes, each artifact is given a number. After the, the layer um, or context, it will get a, a sequential number, which will correspond to the next, <clears throat> to the next step in analysis. So if you have you know, artifact number one, you know, it's a piece of glass. Uh, number two is a piece of ceramic. When it's analyzed, you know, the analysis sheet will give that number. And, you know, if it's a piece of glass, they'll put wine bottle or possible uh, wine bottle fragment. And, and depending on how big the piece of glass is and if there's any marking on it, you should be able to give the, the age or or how it was how it was made. 18th century glass has markings on it, and 19th century glass usually has a company logo or town and state. A bottle would be either free-blown or blown in a mold. So depending on the characteristics of the artifact, you know, you can tell that. Is it something that has uh, embossing on it? You know, like the medicine bottles that said Dr. So-and-so snake oil. You know, you mark you, you, in the, on your analysis sheet, you'll say it's got doctor, you know, and like maybe the first two letters of the name before it's broken. And then, you know, further analysis, you know, you figure out what it was. And then if you know what type of medicine bottle or which doctor or so-and-so was based on uh, books and, you know, listing all these types of known bottles, you can figure out what what type it was what the whole thing would have looked like and how old it was. Same thing would apply with ceramics. Is it a, a stoneware? Is it a porcelain? Is it a earthenware? These types of ceramics generally have company manufacturing records, particularly uh, British, you know, which have documented the types of ceramics they were making, you know, when they were making it, when certain glazes became available, shapes, forms of particular plates or bowls. But the process of recording each artifact and creating a list of every artifact taken from the ground had to be efficient. Dr. Grossman didn't have a lot of time to waste. He also needed to follow guidelines that dictated how the artifacts were to be handled, preserved, and cataloged. He implemented another technological ingenuity. 
and we had laws mandating that you excavate artifacts if they're endangered, but not clear guidelines as how to stabilize, preserve, and conserve the artifacts. So there were new Department of Interior guidelines and examples where the Department of Interior of the National Park Service had implemented computerized inventory systems to help expedite the identification and conservation of artifacts. So I hired a woman who was from the National Park Service who had worked with that recording system. So I and so I and I hired the conservator to give us the capability to chemically stabilize the artifacts, the bone, the 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 uh, leather, the pottery, the glass, every every category of artifact needed to be chemically stabilized, or it would turn to cigar ash. So. We had these three powerful components, the conservator, the Department of Interior guidelines, and a digital recording of the layer cake of the excavation. Remember, all these technological solutions that Dr. Grossman applied to each step of the excavation was done during the late 70s and early 80s. To search for the supposedly buried settlement, he implemented ground-penetrating radar. To record the excavation, he utilized a high-resolution camera on a 25-foot bipod. To expedite the recording of the artifacts and to follow national guidelines for recording and stabilizing artifacts, he hired a former employee of the National Park Service who was familiar with the computerized system. But it was a logistical challenge for me. I had to get the government to get compliance with the new laws in a matter of weeks. I had to develop a data recovery system that would first develop a system to map the buried settlement, and then later to develop a data recovery program to excavate the buried settlement based on a radar map that we developed for this excavation. The excavation, I had only a matter of weeks to plan and implement a large number of applied technology solutions. We used one of the first electrical transits, electronic transits in the United States to map the buried surfaces that we excavated. And that was borrowed from a guy named Gene Sterrin, Dr. Gene Sterrin, who was the chief archaeologist at Society of American Archaeology, working at a site in Sardis, Turkey, where he brought a computer transit to map the buried site of Sardis. Well, I talked to him after he did that and asked him about the computer transit. He told me about it and said it was worth a try. So I hired a company in the Northeast U.S. that had a computer transit for the first time. Unfortunately, Dr. Grossman ran into another computer problem. The problem with the computer transit was that it only took angle and distance readings. 
and we needed the coordinates of each excavated artifact to be recorded. So we had to develop computerized programs in BASIC to program angle and distance readings into coordinate readings so that as we excavated, we could assign coordinates to the excavated artifacts, which we did. But we had to learn BASIC programming and had the program. The inventory system came from a division of the United States government that was not part of the National Park Service. The main database system of the excavation was developed based on the National Park Service system that they developed, which the person I hired had worked on uh, in Washington. And that was partially an inventory system that was developed for the Department of Defense, which I worked on very briefly uh, before the excavation, how to categorize and identify thousands of artifacts efficiently. The idea of going computerized was an innovation in itself because it predated the computers, uh, IBM computer, by uh, two years. We were in the field in 77, 78, and the first portable computers came out in 76, 77. They were TRS-80 Radio Shack computers. And I programmed on uh, TRS-80 in basis. The computers on site were dumb terminals connected to radio telephone wires, not radio, telephone wires to the mainframe computers at Rutgers University. So we typed in the database inventory of the National Park Service into the inventory system of Raritan Landing to have a computerized inventory. Within two months of completing the excavation, we had over 100,000 artifacts computerized, inventoried, chemically stabilized, and ready for exhibition and analysis, ready to go. He also implemented what is referred to as the Harris Matrix. And it was a way of explaining the layer cake of an archaeological site digitally, numerically. And so that was combined with the digital inventory system of the Park Service to come up with a integrated digital three-part recording system, the X, Y, Z coordinates, the identity, weight, amount, and function and date of the excavated artifacts, often within hours of being excavated, because the conservator was on site and able to make interpretations in a matter of hours because of stabilizing the artifacts and chemically preserving them. And third was a computerized inventory system that gave us Department of Interior standards and guidelines for an expedited excavation 
in a matter of months. Within two months of the excavation being completed, all artifacts had been inventoried, stabilized, and ready for analysis. Before we hear from David Zamoda and learn about the artifacts and how they were handled in the lab, let's review the long list of government agencies involved in this project. It gets high up there. I mean, this was a pretty high-profile project. So the uh, ultimate question of who had to say, the executive branch and the federal government had to say, people who worked in the executive branch related to the White House were involved, and that is a group called the Advisory Council of Historic Preservation. And they are appointed by the White House to arbitrate disputes between state and federal agencies or very difficult situations that the law has not addressed beforehand. The ultimate authority here was the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation and they arbitrated the discussions between the state and the federal agencies. In this case, the state agencies was the New Jersey Department of Environmental Preservation. And the federal agency that was the lead agency was the U.S. EPA. In this case, this was an EPA project, a water treatment plant project, so it was a pure federal EPA project. The county and the state had to adhere to federal standards and guidelines. And it was the responsibility of the advisory council to make sure that the agencies adhered to those guidelines. So I was working, of course, with the university bureaucracy, but also at the state level with New Jersey DEP case officers at the federal level with two case officers that were in charge of this project for the EPA. Once the artifacts arrive in the lab, there are specific steps that every field tech learns when he, she, or they participate in an excavation. We will start with washing the artifacts. As we excavate each layer of soil, any artifact from a particular layer of soil gets put into a bag which records the the test unit and then the which soil level to keep the control over what comes from which level. So as the bags go back to the lab, each bag will be washed separately and returned to that bag. The next process after that will be labeling the artifacts. Somebody will pick up each artifact unless it's you know, less than a quarter inch, with a a quill pen, a metal quill, will mark each artifact with the site number, the test unit, and then the level. So it'll have a certain sequence of numbers. So if you took all the artifacts from the site and put them in a pile, you should be able to pick each one out and put it back into its original bag. In the lab, Mr. Zamoda became known as the glass expert. I was curious how he became such an expert. I started out collecting old bottles, something archaeologists shouldn't admit to back in the high school days, previous to my interest in archaeology, and that's possibly what got me interested in archaeology in the first place. I had a couple friends back in the day that would go out in the woods and find 
bottles and of course you know we'd buy books that uh, talked about bottles or or listed different types of bottles and pictures so we could always say oh yeah look we found one of these and it's from 1890 or wow this one was from 1860 you know the books also you know that we we got to explain the manufacturing techniques when bottles went from hand blown to uh the uh, bottle machines. You know, even before I went to college, I had a, a general knowledge of, of of glass and and bottles. Through time, uh, you know, with, with more research and, and more books, I just got to know what I knew. <laughs> then he informed us about the different types of bottles that were found at the excavation site. Most of the glass bottle fragments were generally the wine bottles, what are called wine bottles. It doesn't mean they all had wine in them. They could have been used, well, for other other uh, liquor as well, rum or whiskey. Any type of liquid, you know, would, could have been stored in bottles. So I'm not saying that, you know, they were every one of them held wine and that's all they were doing is drinking wine there. They did, it, they did have the multiple uh, purpose. We found earlier material, uh, a snuff bottle. When you start getting into the into the 19th century, the mid-19th century, the bottles will start becoming more uh, varied. You're getting into the, the patent medicines. You're getting into some of the uh, food bottles, you know, like uh, pickle bottles or olives or, or honey. The glass industry was was developing more quickly in the in the uh, early 19th century, and and the patent medicine industry was was becoming more popular. There was no pure food and drug act at the time. Anybody could call themselves a doctor and have bottles made and fill them up with alcohol and opium, and call it a cure for dysentery or or baldness sometime in the same bottle. It's found that people were, who were publicly known as teetotalers could be hooked on a particular type of patent medicine because you had more alcohol than whiskeys got in it. Some that had uh, opium or uh, cocaine, I guess it was just the added kick to the alcohol. The 18th century glass artifacts recovered from the site were a dark green. The, the main ingredient of uh, glass is uh, sand. A lot of sand has a high iron content. It's the iron in the sand that causes the green color, less iron in it, um, and would make more of an aqua glass. The, hence, uh, a lot of the uh, window glass was being made down there. But it was still an aqua color, which... Um, you know, if you look at some of the old uh, uh, mason jars, you know, you picture the aqua color, aqua, you know, the old Coke bottles with aqua color. It wasn't until later in the 19th century where it was discovered if manganese was added to the uh, mixture that the manganese cancels the color of the iron and you would get a clear glass. I didn't know what manganese was. I'm not sure if it's technically a metal or an ore. It's just another ingredient to th- to throw in your batch of glass. If, if you use cobalt, you can get blue glass. If you use gold, you can make red glass. Um, 
zinc, you could get white glass or milk glass. It was a mineral or metal that was added to the uh, to the batch in the uh, furnace to make a different color of glass. And of course, with the manganese, you're not making a color; you're canceling a color, which would have been the dark green. How many artifacts were recovered? We know exactly because we computerized as we went. So when we finished excavation, we were almost done with the computer inventory of the collection. So I was able to go back to the county on a weekly basis and report exactly how many artifacts were being exposed and processed so we could budget the laboratory time and budget for the appropriate number of artifacts. Uh, the total number of artifacts was 108,885 8, 8, artifacts. What did the participants think about the excavation of Raritan Landing? David Zamoda. A lot of the excavations were based on the Vermeule, the 1936 Vermeule map, which showed a vacant corridor that we thought that the pipeline could be put through without disturbing anything. It it showed us that the density of the town of Raritan Landing was a, a, a lot denser than Vermeule showed. There were buildings that were not on his map that were found in the field. It gave more of a, a picture of 18th and 19th uh, century settlement for that uh, type of site. It also told a lot about the the individual sites that were examined, what type of activities were going on. We asked Joel Grossman for his thoughts. It symbolized a center of commerce up and down the drainage and all the way to New York that was the epicenter of regional, interregional trade based on the glass, the pottery, and the artifacts that were recovered. And that became lost to our history. It became unknown as a result of the government mandate to document the site that had to be destroyed and only the site that had to be destroyed. We excavated a thin corner in 1978 to document the unavoidable destruction of sliver through the settlement. By far the most extensive conclusions about what was learned from the first significant excavation of Raritan Landing was provided by Dr. Rebecca Yeaman. She wrote her doctoral dissertation on trade at the landing. My thesis advisor at NYU was Bert Solomon. And Bert Solomon, before he was an archaeologist, lived in Trenton, New Jersey. He was an aeronautics engineer. And, um, and then his son started collecting uh, arrow points along the canal, and Bert left you know, engineering and went to Columbia and got a PhD. So he was always interested in why New Jersey got such a bad rap. So when I was working at the Rutgers Archaeological Survey Office, which I... You know, I got that job, and I can't really remember how I got that job, but I always needed to work because I was divorced and had two children. Mm. So I was working there and looking for a dissertation and, and finishing my degree at NYU and looking mm. for a dissertation topic. And I really thought it was going to be Native American, and going to, but 
uh, this Raritan Landing thing came up. And so Bert thought, here is a great opportunity to look at some place, archaeologically, that is between Philadelphia and New York and see what was going on there. As she was examining ceramic shards from the community, she noticed something. The site did not yield large amounts of a type of dish called creamware, evidence that indicated wealthy inhabitants. She also did not find what is known as slip-decorated earthenware. This type of ceramic is brown, decorated with patterns of yellowy squiggle marks. It's the, the lack of creamware and the presence of the slip-decorated earthenwares that made me think, how come? How come? You know, this place that's a trading center yeah. doesn't have any creamware when this is the right period for having creamware to set your table. So how come it's not there? So that, of course, was the inspiration for my thinking about um, how the community was expressing itself and how it was avoiding aligning itself with something that would look uh, more in tune with the fashions and in tune with people who were better off. When Dr. Rebecca Yeaman was researching the town, she realized scholarly history books were lacking in information about trade in New Jersey. Because of this absence of information, the discovery and excavation of this successful port can be recognized as a much more significant event. Dr. Yeaman made many of the most important conclusions about the landing. She discovered that after examining the diverse ceramic shards, it was clear that even though the merchants of Raritan Landing had access to the best type of goods from over the world, even the wealthiest citizens used ceramic products that were locally made. That is astonishing. The people of Raritan Landing could have purchased plates or teaware, for example, from China, the Netherlands, but paid local potters to craft yellow dishes with brown trim that resembled the fashionable products the wealthy citizens of New York City had requested and used decades prior. Next episode, the British army encamps at Raritan Landing during the American Revolution, and we learn about the artifacts left behind. Thank you for listening to Uncovering Raritan Landing, I'm Douglas Almack. Uncovering Route and Landing is produced by me and Mitchell Kevitt, who is also our technical advisor. We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Middlesex County Board of County Commissioners. This podcast is dedicated to County Commissioner Kenneth Armwood, who encouraged us to do something no one has ever done before. Special thanks to those interviewed, Dr. Rebecca Yeaman, Dr. Joel Grossman, and especially David Zamoda for answering my questions for almost four hours. If you want to read Dr. Yeaman's book, Rediscovering Raritan Landing for free, go to history at co.middlesex.nj.us and ask for a free copy. Uncovering Raritan Landing is written by me, Douglas Almack, Mitchell Kevitt, Colin Doherty, and Emma Young. Edited and sound mixed by me, our theme song is Fun Time by Alexander Misrovsky.